What we need to do now, I think, is apply the same kind of a searching inquiry to the tools and traditions that we have that are less physical. So we, we have to look at our inheritances and we have to think about the way our use of them will shape the coming centuries. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Bryce Andrews, author of Holding Fire, A Reckoning with the American West. When he inherits his grandfather's Smith & Wesson revolver, Bryce faces the history of violence in his valley of the American West examining ecological grief as much as the violence that precedes it, and also what it means to inherit and subsequently reject a legacy of violence, Bryce, in his characteristically reverent and thoughtful prose, manages to untangle a region's historically violent past from his own regenerative, even optimistic, future. Bryce Andrews is the author of Down from the Mountain, which won the Banff Mountain Book Competition and was a Montana Book Award honor title and an Amazon Best Science title of 2019. His first book was Bad Luck Way, which won the Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers Award, the Reading the West Book Award for nonfiction, and the High Plains Book Award for both nonfiction and debut book. Bryce grew up in Seattle, Washington, and spent a decade working on ranches in the high valleys of Montana. He lives near Missoula with his family. Bryce, welcome to The Right Question. Thank you for having me. In Holding Fire, you write of your grandfather's Smith & Wesson revolver. How many times had I carried that weapon as a talisman against fear? What are you fearful of today? And what, if anything, do you hold now as a talisman for that fear? That's a really good question and kind of a complex one. I mean, I I think when I first arrived in Montana and began to work as a ranch hand, the things I feared were the things that many people fear about wilderness. You know, I feared bears and wolves and the dark. And um, I think uh, to a great extent, the process that I've gone through since I've been here, which has, you know, been a decade and a half of, of doing that work of ranching, has been to to come to a very different level of, um, I guess, a different, you know, I've become comfortable with a lot of those things I used to fear, but I've become fearful of some new things. And the things I fear now, I guess, would be, you know, the this sort of American obsession with violence and the, the violence bred into, braided into our collective history and our treatment of of the land and and wild animals and indigenous people here too. So I mean I, I guess I fear human impulses more than, you know, large toothed animals now. And I think if there's anything that I carry as a talisman, it, it's probably, you know, the the tool that I that I made out of that revolver, um, which is a, a a tool made for rewilding, for planting trees. Mm-hmm. Holding Fire is about a lot of things, including that fear and this violence that you just mentioned. But one of 
the more complicated themes that you draw out in this book is one about inheritance and unbraiding that inheritance um, or legacy or lineage. Um, your father refused the draft, the Vietnam draft. Your grandfather had experiences in war. Um, throughout this book, you wonder how anti-violence might be handed down to you and how violence itself might be handed down to you as well. Um, you talk about ranching as inherited work. Um, and, and readers learn late in the pages of Holding Fire that you're not only concerned uh, with these ideas as you experience them, but also how your daughter will experience them too. Will you talk about inheritance and the way that you um, are, yes, drawing it out in your book, but maybe the way that you thought about it before this book became the book that it is? Sure, sure. I think, um, I mean, inheritance is a huge part of what this story is about. And more specifically, what we do with complicated or compromised inheritances, which I think many of us here in the American West and elsewhere, we we are heir to, um, you know, compromised inheritances um, because of the violence that's in the history of, of um, you know, westward expansion and, and culture here. Um, you know, for me, I, I think when I first came here and, and when I was growing up, you know, I grew up in Seattle and we used to come out, my parents and I, and take these road trips. And my dad loved to fish and we had some people we knew out here. And so we would go through and I was just head over heels in love with both the actual West as I saw it and the mythic West as it was presented to me in all sorts of cultural vehicles, you know, in movies and songs and stories. And I had this idea that someday I would come out here and I would prove myself worthy to stand in this sort of line of people who were strong and hardworking and, you know, made themselves a place in a wilderness. And I felt like that, you know, originally that was something I wanted more than almost anything. And in some ways I did that. You know, I came here, I became a cowboy, I worked as a ranch manager, I did all this stuff. And... I slowly came to understand the the darker side of that inheritance and to grapple with it. Um, and 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 what I mean by that is I came to experience and suffer from the violence that's braided into our relationship with with the land here in the West. And I came to really chafe at that because as as a rancher, I was sort of the the point of that spear in many ways. Um, or I was the hand on that gun. And one of the things that started to happen for me is I began to doubt some of the things that I had embraced formerly in terms of how I wanted to be in relationship to the place that, um, that where, I, where, I, where I lived and the place that fed me and, and everything. Um, the tricky thing and the interesting thing that began to happen through that is that I started to understand that there was also this sort of parallel inheritance within my family of nonviolence. Um, and that's something that my father personifies very well. He was a conscientious objector uh, in Vietnam and did alternative service. Um, and I remember his stories very, very well about, you know, deciding that that was his path, um, having to explain it to his family, um, not always being supported there, and then having to defend his choice to do something that ran counter 
to what many people at the time thought was the, the right thing for a young man to be doing, having that to explain that to his elders and to people on the, the draft board. Um, and as I was working my way through this story and grappling with my own issues related to violence and nonviolence, you know, my father's story and his conviction um, were really important to me. And I thought about them a lot. I want to talk about this term violence because it appears in different ways in your book. You talk about hunting. You talk about the inheritance of this revolver and kind of the psychic weight that you carry or it carried with you. Um, you're a rancher who inevitably had to kill animals who were mm -hmm. sick and dying. And you've written, by fall of that first year on the Sun Ranch, I understood a truth of ranching. For every birth, a death, for every calf romping in June's green fields, a carcass cooling somewhere. I had come to believe that getting by in the world required violence. If I wanted to make my living out here, I decided I would have to kill to eat. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the distinction for you between these types of violence, because you, again, you talk about hunting, you talk about the necessary killing as a rancher. Yeah, I mean, I think that there are, I mean, that's something I've thought about a lot. Right, the, the different forms of violence, the different kinds of killing that are either necessary or unnecessary in the lives that we lead here and elsewhere. I mean, certainly if you pull back from this story and you look on the broadest level at our society right now, we are, we are absolutely plagued by unnecessary killing. And, and that is a very different thing than, than using a rifle as a tool to go and, and get a deer that's going to sustain you for a year. I mean, so I've, I've sort of bookended this massive spectrum here. And a lot of what this book was about for me as a process of discovery for me as an author was trying to pull apart my feelings about those things because I've always loved, I've always really loved hunting. I love the, the connection to wild places. I like the directness with which you're feeding yourself from the land but I've always I've struggled with I've always struggled with killing in all of its forms, but I think there are certain forms of death and killing that I remain comfortable with. You know, subsistence hunting is obviously one of them, and then I think that there are other currents within our collective psyche that are deeply damaging, and I think that pulling those two things apart is really important as part of what I wanted to do in this book. I mean, I, there's a story in this book about these poachers on this kind of back road I used to live on when I was managing a ranch. And, and I, you know, so I, I lived next to this alfalfa field. And there were all these deer that would come nightly and I began to know them. And then one night this, you know, well, one morning I woke up and found the field just covered, dotted with dead deer. I'd never heard anything um, because the people who did it apparently used some sort of a silenced weapon and I remember just being livid at the waste and the inhumanity and the callousness that's required to do something like that. And I really wanted to understand how that's different from the kind of hunting that, that I was doing. And I think the book explores that in some pretty explicit ways. Um, I think also there's, there's a difference in terms of the tools that you use. You know, I don't think that all, all guns are the same in terms of the forces that they exert on us. And that's another main theme here is that, you know, the tools we carry, the things we surround ourselves with, they exert pressures on us. You know, there's a there's an old 
you know, a rancher guy who was a friend of mine who once told me, a guy buys a backhoe and everything starts looking like it needs to be a hole, you know, which is to say that tools want use. And one of the things that I think is crucial for people to understand when they're thinking about, you know, our relationship with firearms in this place is that we have too many of them around. And if you have so many things lying around with destructive affinities, it pulls people toward destructive behavior or self-destructive behavior. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a conversation with Bryce Andrews. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you want to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. When the revolver first came into my hands, I felt history vibrating in it. The weapon was alive with affinities, and it shone with power. I thought that the leather cartridge belt around my waist tied me to a line of men who were strong, who endured and strove against a wilderness, who broke the world into shapes that pleased them. To carry that gun and be counted among such men was my inheritance as a settler's son. For years, I embraced the bright side of that inheritance without looking much at its darkness. I have no excuse for this. My mother, the black and white photographer, taught me better. She taught me that only half of a thing's true shape is shown by reflected light. The other half is shadow. To illustrate this, she took me to look at Puget Sound. Stirred by a light wind, the water was a chaos of wavelets, each one of them half ink, half mercury. An artist's eye sees that negative space, she told me. It finds the dark places and the cracks. She passed those secrets to me, expecting me to remember, but when I first saw the shining west, I forgot. I canonized people who carved hard livings from rough country, enshrined roping, herding, and breaking ground with big machines as noble labor, and considered Montana-born cowboys as a native aristocracy. I strove to emulate those western scions, seldom looking critically at them or my chosen life. But I am my mother's son, born with her eyes. Eventually, I developed doubts. They started small, as a suspicion that something was wrong with the way I treated livestock. Every cow, studied closely, has her own way of being in the world. It's easy to ignore this while looking at 200 head of black Angus cattle, but the truth is that even a lion-bred herd is made of individuals. Cows have preferences and affiliations. They nurture alliances and vendettas, despite the fact that we have spent millennia nudging their species toward heft and dullness. Nature is incorrigible that way. Most cowboys I worked with did not recognize this or weren't willing to discuss it beyond warning me when a bull was on the fight. They'd say good mama to a cow when she licked a newborn clean and stood quietly to suckle. Two days later, they'd cuss her as a mean old rip for menacing them when they came to tag and castrate her calf. Very seldom did they weigh the traits together and see the animal as she was. This willful blindness is unsurprising because a modern, large-scale stockman's work Raising livestock to be killed for strangers is psychologically burdensome. It is easier to haul a load of calves to slaughter if you do not know one animal from another. Looking away is meant to protect us, but it doesn't work. Instead, it precludes our learning from animals and comprehending the depth of our entwinement with them and the land. Absent this bond and knowledge, 
it is hard to avoid becoming lonesome, vengeful, and destructive. Much of this destruction is visited upon plants and soils. You use the term vengeful at the bottom of that passage. Mm -hmm. It's hard to avoid becoming lonesome, vengeful, and destructive. And I'm wondering if you would elaborate on that idea that ecological destruction of the land is a form of vengeance. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think the best way that I could elaborate on that is to say that in the course of doing the work of ranching, I've been exposed to situations in which people acted toward animals in a, and the land in a way that can only be described as vengeful. And I always wondered why that was. You know, somebody who kills without reason or inf inflicts pain when they don't need to, I didn't understand where that was coming from, where that frustration, that anger, like what the source of that was. And I really think that that comes from a deep flaw in the way that we perceive our relationship to the land that sustains us out here. And I think that if we want to remediate that, if we want to find a different path, one of the best things that we could do is actually look seriously and carefully and respectfully at the traditions and, and, and stories and cultures of indigenous people. Um, because I think that that vengeance, that anger, I think that that's linked pretty darn closely to the idea that we have to conquer a landscape, that, that what we are in is some sort of a battle with other forces. And that stands in very stark contrast to the way that a friend of mine is named Jermaine White, who was the um, outreach and, and education uh, director for the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes for many years. Um, Jermaine you know, said, the way to think about that relationship is not about conquest, it's about reciprocity. It's about participation. And so for me, that, that mindset that ends at anger and vengeance stands in stark contrast to some very good examples that we have throughout the West in the form of enduring indigenous cultures. There's a passage in Holding Fire where you go to Jermaine's house uh, to speak with her about, well, do you yeah. remember? Well, she had like a fence you needed, or, Well, yeah. Right? So, I, I mean, there's that, that's a whole other part of my life in which, yeah, yeah. you know, I would... I spent a lot of time um, building electric fences to keep bears out of places they shouldn't be. And I was working on one for Jermaine. So you and so I went up to her house to, to help her with a fence that had a, kind of a glitch right, in it, right. um, ironically plying a trade that, that I have learned in the course <laughs> of ranching. Um, and we ended up in a really interesting conversation about this gun. And it was right at the time when I was trying to decide what I should do with it. Right. Because I'd been through this sort of dark moment with it where I'd really felt vulnerable to its destructive power. And I knew that I wanted to make it into something else somehow. But I, I couldn't stomach the idea of destroying it because it had come from my grandfather. Right. And right. I remember talking with Jermaine. And, you know, in the course of that conversation, she said... Um, well, she said that bit about reciprocity, which has always stuck right. with me. Mm -hmm. um, but she also said something that was really revelatory for me in that she said, you know, fire is only destructive in the, in the Western cosmology, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and she described the way in which fire is a tool of renewal um, for the Salish, was a tool of renewal and is a tool of renewal for the Salish people. And that really stuck with me and and was important to the way I was thinking about the gun's transformation. 
in that conversation, you also spoke with Jermaine about home. So I want to come back to home, but Mm -hmm. I want to keep on this thread of fire. I'm wondering, since you created this new tool from your revolver, mm-hmm. and I, we, you've already said that, so I don't feel like I'm spoiling anything no, for go your ahead. readers. Go ahead. Um, how does that cosmology now infiltrate your life since this idea that fire is renewal? Is, has that infiltrated other parts of your life, or is it solely for this one symbolic purpose that the sure. book outlines? I mean, I think that the, I feel differently about fire now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly, I feel, and I feel differently about about the material of the gun, the metal. And that's actually mostly down to a conversation I had with Jeffrey Funk, who is an amazing blacksmith and the person who I worked with at his place, which is called the New Agrarian School up in Big Fork. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jeffrey, I remember, you know, once articulating to him how I felt like metal was sort of this dead material that was ripped from the guts of the earth and, and stood, and that it was really different from wood or something that grew back or or the grass that the cattle would eat to feed us, you know, because it was not renewable. And he really opened my eyes by telling me about how endlessly renewable the material it's actually is. Mm-hmm. It's everywhere. It's, it, in you us. know, it's, it's in us. It pumps through our veins. It, it's what keeps our lives going on. And when we die, it returns to the soil and it's cycled through and it becomes something new. And even in, in its finished form, it's extracted iron, mm-hmm. you know, extracted steel. It's something that can be given so many shapes and so many affinities. And I think that is the concept, a combination of that concept with some of the things Jermaine was talking about in terms of reciprocity and participation within an ecosystem, being a means of thriving in a place. Those are really the two ideas, the two poles that kind of animate what I wanted to do with the tool that I made out of the gun. I was just going to say, I feel like they are pointing out what you point out in the book, which is that um, we need to know how our tools are used, Mm -hmm. right? Fire is a tool, right? Sure. Of course. And then, you know, Jeffrey is telling you about exactly, you know, what he's doing with, with metals. Yeah. Um, it, it all seems kind of part and parcel of this same idea. Yeah. What we need to do now, I think, is apply the same kind of a um, searching inquiry to the tools and traditions that we have that are less physical. So we, we have to look at our inheritances and look at these incredibly powerful tools that we've devised, things that can take life, that can sustain life, things that can change entire ecologies. And we have to think about the way our use of them will shape the coming centuries. Because that's one of the things that I really got out of talking with Jermaine is this idea of looking at your home, recognizing it as such, as home, and, and kind of panning out to the century level and saying like, okay, the, if the last two centuries were bad here, which is a thing I think you actually can say objectively, bad for, you know, bad for landscape, bad for wildlife, and very bad for indigenous cultures and peoples. And we want them to be otherwise. We have to think, okay, what do we do with all this stuff that we have in this moment? What gets through the hourglass of the present and what do we take forward with us? And that's kind of what the second half of this book is about. Do you consider your work as an author, as a storyteller, part of that work? Yes. As as this tool, as yeah. a tool. I think that stories are an incredibly powerful tool. And the reason I write about my life 
is, you know, I've heard people say that, you know, all memoirists are narcissists and there may be some truth to that, but I honestly have chosen to write about the things I have done because I know them well enough to write about and because I hope that some of the things that have impacted me open up onto larger issues of our moment. And the stories we tell ourselves are how we understand our place in history and the landscape. And they play an enormous role in, you know, our embrace of things like nonviolence. And so I do feel that telling this story is a very natural extension of doing what I did to the revolver. So much of the book is you talking about moving towards this American West mythos and and wanting to be this cowboy, wanting to be so much a part of Montana's mythos and mm-hmm. and and the region here. And then Jermaine says, "But you've called this home for over a decade. It is your home." Right. And that in that moment seemed not only revelatory for you, but as a reader, I was just like, "Yes, finally he realized yeah. it." But I'm wondering. How how do you think about belonging in this place? That's so complicated for me um, because for most of my life, I wanted so badly to belong in a world where it was very hard to feel like, like you did belong unless you were born to it. Um, and I mean, there are still people who will listen to me talk about this despite the fact that I've spent most of my adult life as a rancher professionally, and we'll say he was born in Seattle. He doesn't get to talk about this. And, and that, you know, I reject that now. Um, being at home in a place or being, you know, uh, belonging in a place. I have had a few conversations with people where it's just kind of been laid bare for me that the idea of, of like, you know, are you as much of a legit Montanan as the next person? That holds so little meaning for me anymore. This is about how do we serve the places that sustain us? How do we engage with them? How do we improve them? How do we preserve what's what's good and strong and, and healthy in them? How do we repair them where they've been damaged? What are we all going to do? What are we going to do on behalf of this place that we look around and the action that's required from all of us who live here at this point, I think, is a a lot of it has to do with repair and it has to do with rewriting some of our damaging myths and it has to do with looking at examples in the form of indigenous cultures where people have thrived here for millennia. Because you can look at that and you know it's possible because people did it. And our task now is to figure out what that looks like mapped onto a modern landscape. Does that then mean that belonging to this place is embracing those ideas of change and reparation? Yeah, I think it does. I think belonging to this place, and I think belonging to this place also means being alive to what this place is really, instead of being um, blinded by myths that we hand down about what we want this place to be or what, I mean, that's where you get into all this stuff. I mean, it's funny because you, I try to write a, a book that's beautiful to read. It you is, know, it's to, gorgeous. I try to write something that, is, that, yeah. like, that, that's a story that captivates people. But on some level, what I really hope is that people read things like this 
and that they don't subdivide a valley that's beautiful. It's like this really practical thing that I want for people to do. You know, it's like I, I want them to read this and understand this struggle and, and understand how fragile and how full this landscape has become. And if they're going to live here, live here in a way that's respectful. That was Bryce Andrews, author of Holding Fire, A Reckoning with the American West, out now from Mariner Books, an imprint of HarperCollins. Look for more information about Bryce at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. Our artwork was designed for The Right Question by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridis. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.